0: Open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews 12, beginning in verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin. to hear, let him hear. This passage is very significant for me. It's one of the passages I I memorized first when I first started memorizing scripture. I love this passage. It is so instructive as to the nature of the Christian life. It's so vital. It's so far-reaching. It reaches to every corner of your life. And I want to give to you today some of that significance. If you want to start memorizing Scripture, which I encourage you to do, you should start with this one. It should be at the top of your list. Especially you young people. If you're not already beginning down the path of hiding God's Word in your heart, you should begin today and hide this one in your heart. The plan for the next few weeks is this. I'll just kind of tell you my plan. Uh, this week we're covering the intro verse where he says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, looking to Jesus. And then next week we'll talk about let us run with endurance, the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus. And then the week after that we'll have a kind of standalone message. That'll be the second Sunday in, uh, I'm sorry, the first week of the new year, we'll, we'll talk about looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, and look to the end of verse 3. So we'll jump right into it this week. Uh, three parts uh, that I hope to go through this morning. First, we'll discuss the function and place of this passage in the book of Hebrews. Why is it there? What is he doing with this verse? Second, we're just going to make sure we understand what he's saying, because he might not be saying what you think he's saying. And third, we'll look at a few things that it means for us today, especially in view of Christmas. So, as is the case in almost all of the books of the New Testament, there are many therefores, and they begin new sections of thought. But this is not the main or number one therefore in the book of Hebrews. We encounter that in chapter 10 where he says, let us hold fast our confession and our hope without wavering, and let us consider how to stir one another up to love and to good works. And that functions as what I call the Christian triad. And that's not a, a cool name for a gang, right? That's, that's the name of uh, what we call faith, hope, and love. It's the Christian triad. That's where we encounter it. And the, the structure of the book of Hebrews is this. We, we meet faith, hope, and love in chapter 10 near the end, And then chapter 11 discusses faith, and then chapter 12 discusses hope, and chapter 13 discusses love. So the theme of hope does not fully develop in chapter 12 until the middle of the chapter. The first half is about contrasting our faith in our current circumstances. Look at What is happening to the people of God versus what our faith is? We believe these things. We say that these things are what we believe in, that God will eventually do all these things. But look at what's currently happening. And This is, as I just read with verse 3, "...consider him who endured such hostility from sinners." This is part and parcel with the life of faith, that you believe in God, but yet our circumstances do not line up with the things that we hope would be true. And so, in the midst of that discontinuity between our faith and what is currently happening, that is where hope has to reside. That's where it has to arise, because without hope, our faith hasn't finished. What does faith produce in us in face in the face of such circumstances? It's hope. And that's. Immediately, something to ask for yourself. This is how the these work together. Faith produces hope, and in a hopeful posture towards the world, we are then freed to love one another. So, just ask yourself, has your faith produced hope? Especially in a year like this, your your faith might just produce wishful thinking. That's not hope. Your faith might produce a kind of Detachment from the world. Well, the world's going to hell in a handbasket, and so I'll just detach from all these things. I don't have to really get involved. No, it ought to produce hope, and that's what chapter 12 is about. But these first two verses are really about the object of our faith. When we fall in line with the heritage of faith discussed in chapter 11, and as we look to Jesus in faith, then we can hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, as he said in chapter 10. That's what enables us to have this sure, steadfast anchor of the soul. It's not just faith in general. It is looking to Jesus. Do you need Hope, and do you realize that hope is not the same as faith? If I asked each one of you right now to write down how would you define faith and how would you define hope, there may not be much of a difference. Think of it this way: hope is the offspring or an offspring of faith, but it's not the same. Many of you may have your beliefs in God and the coming of the Lord settled in your mind. But you don't walk around each day living in much hope. It hasn't penetrated deep down to the foundations of your very soul. You believe it. You say. You believe that Jesus will return one day and judge the living and the dead. But if you were to ask an objective observer as to your life, you're not a very hopeful person at all. Your faith hasn't produced hope yet. This message and this text is not so much about hope as about how to mature faith into life-sustaining hope. So what is the text actually saying? Let's spend some time digging around in this text and see what it is talking about. So he says, he begins with the word therefore. And as I've said before, uh, just, just be very afraid whenever a preacher comes to a text that begins with the word therefore, right? Because we have a tendency to just say everything we've already said in previous weeks. But the reason this therefore is there is he's built a, a case, if you will. I want you to have the, the flavor or the imagery in your mind of a courtroom, He he has built a case. He has has marshaled all this evidence together. And he says, therefore, this is an unavoidable next final step in the appeal. A way to think about this word is consequently, or wherefore. Everything he has said all the way back in chapter 10 leads up to this point. All of that recounting of the history of Israel and all of the acts of faith, those were meant to do something in your heart. It's not just a a stroll down memory lane, if you will. Not just reminding you of all those stories you grew up hearing in Sunday school on the flannel graphs. It's meant to do something in your heart. Therefore, it's, it's to create in you a desire to stir your will to do something, to live a certain way. Make a move, change something, uproot something, destroy something, even challenge some norm in your life. The reason our lives, I think, can be so boringly mundane is that we do not take texts like this very seriously because it'd be un- too uncomfortable. We love it. We say we put it, put verses like this in a picture on the wall in our house, but rarely do we raise to the gravity of a text like this. Rarely do our lives rise to that level. Therefore, did any of that move you? All, of, all the weeks we spent recounting the history and heritage of faith of the people of God, did that move you? Did it move anything off of center for you? Has the pendulum swung at all in your heart? That's the summons. Look at this heritage. Is this yours? Do you believe in God like they did? What are you going to do about it? He says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. Got to be careful with this statement. Here's how it's typically understood. Something like this. All those who have gone before us are, are cheering us on. So, we should make sure to live life the right way. We got this. Here, here's the way we think. That, 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 first, that's not what it's saying. Uh, it's built on bad assumptions. Like, okay, so how do I understand the Bible? Okay, I got this word cloud. I know where clouds are. They're in the sky, that's where heaven is. So, the people in heaven are watching down, and they've got this. They're kind of witnessing us. So, we've got to make them proud from where they are in heaven. That's not at all what this is saying. This is. This idea, that's bad exegesis to put it mildly, or as they would say colorfully in some of my classes, that does violence to the text. So what does this mean? What is this statement? Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, what does it mean? Well, let's start the way we always should. What is the meaning of these words? He says, we, in the original text, this is we ourselves. Before we get into the meaning of the other words, let's just remember, the author has given the majority of chapter 11 without mentioning us at all. He finally mentions us again in verse 40, but he's not talking about us very much until now. He reintroduces us, those who trust in Christ, to the discussion And he says, I'll read it again, And these all, referring to the people and the heritage of faith, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. Therefore let us. Do you see the point? The point is an appeal. Since they're not going to be made perfect outside of us and what God has for us, then we should do something. We should live in a certain way. We're not just waiting around. We have to run a race just like them. We ourselves must follow in the examples of those who have endured through faith. It's not a different program. That's the point of chapter 11. It's not like God changed from doing something all through law, and now that Jesus has come, it's through faith. It's always been through faith. So your life should line up to some major degree, of those who have all gone before you in faith and lived their lives as if God's really true and he's going to keep his promises. That's the summons. And he uses this word, surrounded. So that the flavor is, we, therefore, since we ourselves are surrounded, the idea is that there are witnesses everywhere. There's no lack they encircle us. We're, 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 we're crowded in by these witnesses, whoever they are. They're, and they're, they're, they're testifying to something. The idea isn't that they're up in heaven in some cloud. The idea is that they're, they're here. They're, they're, they're so present in our lives that we can't escape it. The idea is that they're, they're screaming at us to live our lives as if God is really trustworthy. You can't wake up in the morning as a believer in God, and not hear their summons. It echoes from the shores of Galilee throughout all time to follow Christ, to run your race. They're summoning you right now, today, to do the same thing. They're all around us. But how are they doing this? Are they spiritually around us? The idea is is like a their words, in a sense, create this, this thickness. Their lives themselves, the words about their lives, create this context of truth and meaning and a way to live your life that's just all around you. You can't ignore it. It's this massive collection of witnesses, those who testify to the life of faith, and the trustworthiness of God. It's more like this, that the author has taken us up a high mountain and we have entered a cloud, so to speak. It's so high, it gives us a high vantage point, but once we get there, we're surrounded by such a thickness of witnesses regarding the life of faith that we can't escape it. So what does he mean by this word, cloud? It is quite literally the word cloud, but it's not that you should think of it as a literal cloud. I like how the New Living Translation phrases this. It's a good paraphrase, not really a direct translation. But it gets the sense of the metaphor. This is a metaphor. It says this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith. That's what he's saying. We are surrounded by a huge crowd of witnesses. It's like saying a boatload, or with my redneck heritage, a truckload, okay, or even a host of. We're we're not being literal that there is a literal boatload of something, or a truckload of something, or a cloud of something. It's that there's just a lot of them. It is a huge crowd of witnesses. Cloud in the author's time was used that way. A whole big group. It would be like saying something like this. Again, bringing in the idea of the courtroom analogy. A mountain of evidence. That's what he's saying. In view of this mountain of evidence. So who are these witnesses? Why does he use this word? It's the same word that we found at the end of chapter 11. And it is the same word that we eventually get the meaning of martyr. Martyr. That, that's the root word here, witness. Um, eventually, after so many Christians are killed for their testimony, they're put to death, and so they, they testify, they give witness to the truth of God by their lives, and then it eventually comes to mean a martyr is just someone who dies in a cause. Now it's come to mean something else entirely, but at this time when it's written, it doesn't have the sense of giving your life by death. It is still the basic legal meaning of one who gives their testimony, one who stands in a courtroom or stands to vouch for someone and gives witness to them, testifies on their behalf. It's a legal context. So the author is is saying something like this, like I said earlier, um, in in view of this mountain of evidence or the, the preponderance of evidence, to use a legal phrase, having heard this mountain of testimony, It also cannot mean just those who have gone before. The the men and women put in chapter 11 by name by the author of Hebrews. Remember, the last one who has given testimony or given witness in chapter 11 was none other than God himself. He's the one witnessing. In fact, in the book of Hebrews, this same root, the root word for, for witness, is used of God more than anyone else. In chapter 2, verse 4, God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. uh, Chapter 7, verse 14, for it is witnessed of him. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. That's God speaking. And chapter 10, verse 15, and the Holy Spirit also bears witness. God is number one witness. And it is as though he is the one bearing the final testimony. And because of what he says about the lives of these men and women, they also become witnesses. He gives his approval of their testimony. So theirs is valid too. That's how this works. God is essentially giving his stamp of approval on their lives because of what the Bible says about them. He is witness on their behalf through the scriptures. And that itself is what makes their life. Even though some of them never said a word as far as the text is concerned. Part of this great cloud of witnesses. Think in the case of Abel. As far as the text in Genesis is concerned, he never says a word. But he's given here in chapter 11 as a witness. Because God commends His faith. And so He is added then to this cloud of witnesses. So as an immediate application before we get to the rest of this. Can God give the same stamp of approval on your life? Do you live by faith in the Son of God? The one we celebrate this time of year? We're so happy about His birth. Would God give His stamp of approval to your life? This one, trust me, as we talked about last week. This one lives their life, his life or her life, like my promises are really true. But further, just rest in this. It's only God's opinion of your life that really matters. If He gives His seal of approval to you, As weak and as incomplete your obedience may be, but if you're living in faith, you're striving to obey Him through faith, He commends you. And His opinion is all that matters. That's it. Do you feel that you have to speak up for yourself? Defend your reputation? Be respected by a lot of people? Fear of man can be very dominating. And it's very respectable, especially if your paycheck is connected to it. But God's opinion is all that matters. And the only way He gives you commendation is through faith in His Son. So, what is God, through the author of Hebrews, exhorting us to do through this passage? This is the basis. In view of this preponderance of evidence, in view of all of this testimony, what are we to do? God Himself is the final and chief witness. What kinds of things ought we to do? Should we just have faith? Just believe? No, he shows us what faith really looks like. And he says, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin or sin that clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us looking to Jesus. This is an amazing passage. And I hope you can sense and feel how, how all-encompassing it is. And how it works its way into every day, every decision you make. This week we'll, have, we'll focus on the exhortation. Ta- There's just too much to cover in one week. and um, I'm not going to try. So we won't be here until one30 We're just going to look at what he tells us to do to get ready to run as we look to Jesus. And I know uh, a few in our congregation enjoy running, but it is my firmly held belief that no one really enjoys running. I feel like it's a scam, you know. I show up, and I, you know, I go to the gym, not as much as I should, and it's the first thing I do. There's like this, we're convinced, it's like Stockholm Syndrome, that we got to go to the treadmill first. It's like to open it up, and it's, it feels terrible. I'm exhausted. No one really enjoys running. We know that we like the benefits, you know. It's like paying your taxes so you don't go to jail, right? So we all pay our taxes. We all run because we don't want a heart attack, but no one really likes running, Okay. And if you know anything about running, you know that there are several things you have to do to get ready to run. You shouldn't just start trying to run one, two, or three miles out of the gate if you haven't been doing it for a while. That will go very badly. What do you do to get ready to run? How are we going to get ready to run this long, grueling race that is set before us? So he begins, he says, let us also, let us also. Before we get to the two things he tells us to do, he immediately connects us to the manner of life of those who have gone before. Let us also. So he's saying that this is what they did. This is how they live. In view of all the lives we looked at, in view of all of the evidence God has put forward as witness to the value of the life of faith, let us also do these things. I hope you have this experience the same as I do because otherwise that would make me a strange person. But when I'm watching a movie or a show and there's the hero and he's about to make a big mistake. He's about to be tempted by that person or go this way that leads to destruction. He's about to make a really stupid decision. You you, you don't want him or her to do that. You're almost yelling at the TV screen. Don't go that way. Oh, I wish you wouldn't have done that. We have that perspective on all these people that have gone before. We get to look at their lives and say, Ah, I wish you wouldn't have done that. Think of David. Think of Abraham. Why did you have to lie? Why did you have to kill? Why did you have to commit adultery? And that, God, through this, reflects it right back on us and says, Okay, what are you going to do? Are you going to live the way that you wish David and Abraham and Moses would have lived? That's what he's saying. Let us also. We we see that they live much of their life in faith, but then they have weaknesses as well. So what are we going to do? Are we going to use the same level of judgment that we hand out to their lives to critique our own lives and to change the way we live? We get a lot of clarity from reading the Old Testament. Reading it the right way. Do the things that you wish they would have done. Live the way that you wish they would have lived. Trust in God with the same zeal that you wish they would have. Honor the Lord in the same way that you wish they would have. Some of you might feel strange at this point in the sermon and say, this really isn't a Christmas sermon so much. We haven't heard anything about the baby, the manger, the inn, the angels, the shepherds. But here's the point. Let us also, this statement makes Christmas mean something. If what we're doing is celebrating the birth of our Messiah, then Everyone celebrating it who has no interest in running the race of faith, living the life of faith, is dishonoring Christmas. It'd be like celebrating, Christmas, uh, celebrating Thanksgiving as a grumpy, ungrateful miser. It's a contradiction. Or celebrating Independence Day while hating America. It makes no sense. Celebrating Christ's birth and having no desire to set aside the weight that makes it difficult for you to run or the sin that entangles you will only increase your condemnation. But it sells. Christmas sells. I have the same issues with Easter. People celebrating Easter that that have no interest in the living Christ just rubs me the wrong way. I'm sorry. No, brothers and sisters, celebrating the birth of Christ ought to be, must be, a commitment to follow him at all costs, or you're doing it wrong. You may have the best presents, the best parties, the best trees, the best lights and decorations and songs, but the one who was born on this day, if you're not setting aside the weight and the sin that encumbers you to run the race towards him, is not pleased. How odd would it feel to you if people celebrated your birthday wishing or believing that you didn't exist? As God says in many of the prophets, I'm just sick of your celebrations and your feasts and your sacrifices. Instead, let there be a flood of justice, an endless procession of righteous living. But I don't want to leave you there at this low point on the Sunday before Christmas, no less. What are we to do? And that's what all gospel preaching should do. In, In following in the example of Peter and John the Baptist, every gospel message, regardless of what time of the year it is, should bring you to the point of asking, what are we to do? Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Notice, look very closely at the text. Let us lay aside every weight and sin, which clings so closely. This is how we get ready to run. And it's so simple. Get rid of the things that make it difficult to run. Whatever makes it difficult to run. Sin, the second thing mentioned, that should be obvious to us. That it would make sense that sin would make it difficult for me to run the race that God has set before me. And we'll talk about the nature of this race next week. What, what is the race? And how, once we get ready to run, how are we to do it? That's next week. But let's ask this it's not just sin, it's weights. The application and question is this, what in your life makes it difficult or does not really help at all in your pursuit of Christ? It may not be something where you can go chapter and verse, oh, I see it's a sin here. But it gets in your way nonetheless. Some of you may have a great number of things in your life that are not at all bad in and of themselves, and they may even be good objectively. But for you, they get in the way of you running this race with endurance, running the race after Christ. They impede your progress of living the life of faith in Him. What are your weights? The longest race I ever ran was a 5K, And I came in second for my age group, which isn't saying much because there weren't many in my age group. But I can imagine that I would have done far worse if I had been trying to carry around a 45-pound dumbbell around the track. or There's actually streets marked off. Can you just imagine how ridiculous that would look, carrying around this 45-pound dumbbell along the streets with everybody else? I might not have been able to finish at all. In this analogy of a race, sin, laying aside sin, is, is stop running off the track, or stop cheating, or stop running the opposite direction. Laying aside these weights that get in the way is put down the dumbbell. The dumbbell is the weight. There's nothing wrong with the dumbbell except the name. Like, like, that's a, who came up with that? Like, let's market this thing. It's going to help you be strong and stuff. What are we going to call it? A dumbbell. You want a dumbbell? Man. But if, if I'm, it'll help you get strong before you run the race, so there's nothing wrong with it. It's not sinful to use this thing. But if I'm going to run the race, I've got to leave it behind. I can't finish if I'm insisting on bringing this along. Looking to Christ as both my example and my goal, I can't take the dumbbell with me. What is the weight In your life, that you need to set aside? It could be something very respectable and very good, something even commended in the scriptures itself. What career path is getting in your way, making it difficult for you to run the race with endurance looking to Jesus? What hobby is making it so very difficult for you to follow Jesus and to run your race with endurance? What use of your money? What use of your time? What relationships in your life are making it difficult for you to run the race with endurance that is set before you? The summons of this text is lay it aside. It's not worth it. Even if it slows you down a little bit, it's not worth it. It does not have to be sin, but the effect is just as bad. If it makes it hard for you to run. So not only the weights, but the sin that clings so closely. Interesting note here, this this word clings so closely is, is one word in the Hebrew, and it's the only place in the New Testament it occurs. And the idea is people or things crowding around you, making it impossible for you to get in stride. Maybe it's referring to a tactic to, for, for other people who are on your running team, making it hard for your number one opponent to get into a stride, crowding him, making it where he trips over their legs maybe so you can go off and run. So the idea is that sin does that to us. It's not something we're trying to carry around that we call good. We're inviting these people to come near to us, crowding us so much that we can't even get into stride. That's the effect of sin. Some of you may have never known the freedom and joy of coming into full stride in your pursuit of Christ because you will not be rid of sin. And I'm not saying that you can be perfect in this life. We all stumble in many ways on this race. But some of you are just letting it. And I can't see your heart, so I don't know who it is. But some of you may be just letting it just cling so closely and prevent you, and you're, you're basically just inching along. Be done with them today. And how do we do this? How do we get rid of these weights? How do we get rid of these sins that cling so closely? We look to Jesus. This is a participle. This is the way it works in the sentence, that all of the summons kind of lead to this statement, looking to Jesus. This is how we do this. It's not just something that we reflexively look in on ourselves and critique our own hearts. We look to Christ. And as we look to Him, it becomes easier and easier to remove the weights and be done with the sin. And so, there's so much to talk about here with Him being the author and perfecter of our faith. We'll get to that in future weeks. But today, let's just talk about Him being the motivation for putting off the sin and the weight. All that I've just explained about being done with the weights or done with the sin may feel very heavy to you. It's a summons to a serious kind of life. Putting aside anything and everything that even just a little bit makes you slow down in your race to gain Christ. This whole analogy of running might be... uh, Depressing because, as I said, no one likes to run. (laughs) we got to run this long race. It's longer than a marathon. It's longer than an Ironman. And now I've got to change my life so I can do it. Well, that doesn't sound fun or enjoyable at all. In order to make this grueling, lifelong race of trials and tribulations worth running and even a joy to run, we must look to Christ Himself. There's no other way. Not just as example. If we look to him as example, that's that's half of the battle, right? Because he did the same thing, as the text is going to say. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. But it's not just example in this text. We're looking to him as goal, where he is seated at the right hand of the Father. That's where our treasure is, as he himself says. He's the prize. He is the end goal. This can be easily related to Christmas. When we read the Christmas story, we see everyone's coming to see Him. We have the shepherds. We have the wise men. They're all coming to Him. They, they know that He's arrived and they, they do whatever it takes to come and see Him. Does that look like your life? Is Jesus your goal is He your prize that you're seeking? He must be because He is the only prize there is. Turn to Philippians 3, 7-16. through 16. Paul lived his life as a man of faith, believing that it was worth giving up anything, setting aside any weight, even if it was a good thing, to make it easier for him to run this race. Philippians 3, beginning in verse 7. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. And now skip down to verse 12. Not that I have already obtained this, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me His own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made this my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. What was the engine that drove the Apostle Paul to do everything that he was able to do for the sake of the kingdom of God in his life? He wanted to gain Christ. It wasn't to be known. It wasn't to achieve some level of fame or intellectual accomplishments or to write a number of books. It was to gain Christ, and if you can latch on to that, if that can be the engine in your heart, I want to gain Christ, even if you already know Him. Paul certainly already knows Him at this point. But I must gain Christ now, so I will count everything as loss for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And when we run the race with Him as the prize, the prize that our eyes are set on it becomes so much easier to lay aside the weights and the sin. Some of you have got it completely backwards. You must look to Jesus first, or else you will not have the right motivation to set aside the sin and the weight. Otherwise, you'll we'll just be a legalist. Not out of love for God or a desire to gain Christ. You just want to follow the rules. It's like Mary and Martha. Martha found her serving difficult and cumbersome and frustrating. But Mary sat at the feet of Jesus wanting to gain Christ. And that wasn't taken away from her. Which of those sisters does your life resemble more? Does your life resemble that of Paul? I've counted everything as lost for the sake of gaining Christ. Christ. Just a few points of application and we'll be done. Christmas, therefore, is a summons to run. Even as the shepherds did on the night that Christ was born. So regardless if your race is short, like it was for the shepherds, they were able to get there on the very night he was born, or if it was a long race like the magi from the east who took several years to get there after they saw the star Short or long, run. Make preparations. Saddle up for the long haul. Gear up for the sprint, maybe. But get going. Run. What are you running for? The reality is that all of us are running after something. Even though one loves running, like we're all living our lives in a way to gain something. The question isn't if you're chasing, it is what you are chasing. As the Christmas song says, the shoppers run home with their treasures. What are we running for? Is it after Christ... I think this is one of the reasons that the Christian life can seem to so many to be so boring and mundane is that we're not chasing Christ. We're just in a stalemate, in an armistice waiting for Him to return. We're not chasing anything worth eternal value. So the summons here is to do something, to get rid of something in your life that is making it hard for you to run after Him. Or, or I would say, and to help someone else run. We're not in this race alone. Wouldn't it be so glorious for you, brother or sister in Christ? If today, this Christmas season, you decided that instead of chasing, spending your life, your days, your years, chasing all the things that the Gentiles seek after, you decided that this Christmas you would begin to honor the one who was born and pursue him and help your brothers and sisters do the same, that your life would be marked now instead of the pursuit of things for your flesh and this life, but for the kingdom, wouldn't that be grand this Christmas? And lastly, he is not so far off. We need to be careful with this text that we don't envision Christ as only waiting in heaven looking to Jesus that that we just have to imagine in some sense him there waiting for us. It is not as if he's only there at the end of a long race. He is in all his glory. But it's not that we can't have him already now. In the gospel... We have His very Spirit giving us life and making us ready to receive Jesus Himself. And by His Spirit, He is with us. Don't leave Christ in the manger this Christmas. Don't leave Him in Galilee. Don't leave Him in Jerusalem. Don't leave Him on the cross. Don't leave Him in the tomb. Don't leave Him in heaven. Bring Him in today. The gospel is that Christ, this one who came, who is the goal of our running, gave his life so that you could run this race and gain him forever. If you do not know Christ, if you have not repented of these sins, turned from them and turned to Christ, may the day be the day... May this day be the day of salvation for you. Wouldn't it be so glorious and so fitting for you today? Maybe you have pretended this Christian life for a long time, fitting in as much as you can, but running no race, having no desire to gain Christ whatsoever. Wouldn't it be so glorious and so fitting this Christmas season for today to be the day of salvation where you finally now know this Messiah? Forsake all for him. Let's pray. I pray, Father, that we would run this race with endurance. Please don't allow us to be so enamored by the weights and sin. Cause us to look to him, lift our gaze heavenward so that we would see him.